Well, church family, our ushers are going to uh, faithfully bring to your seat at this time note sheets, pencils, Bibles. So if you need a Bible, make sure and raise your hand so they know to send one down the aisle toward you so that we can be working together through this wonderful book that the Lord has provided for us in which there is no error, in which there is no contradiction. This Bible that uh, we preach from every Sunday is the book of life because it, it tells us who the Lord God is. It tells us what he wants for us, and it tells us how to worship him rightly. Before we get started, I just want to praise the Lord God for something good that he's doing in one of our church members. Uh, this last Thursday, I was able to go to uh, Diablo Valley Ranch to celebrate the one-year sobriety birthday of our brother, Randy Katurka. Yeah. I'm so happy for you, brother. It is an honor to watch the Lord at work in your lives, and that is transformational power right there. We are very, very grateful for the work that God is doing to make us more holy like he is holy and to overcome the things in our lives that would drag us away from God. And we're going to talk today a, a bit about, about being self-controlled and disciplined. And the Lord is giving that to our brothers and sisters who are seeking sobriety and who are fighting against uh, the temptations of the flesh, which we all fight against. And so we want to just acknowledge that the Lord is good and that he is doing a great work. And, and uh, I praise him for, for your sobriety. And Mike, you're working on it too. And we're so very grateful. Uh, for the work that he's doing in your lives. So before we get into the word, let's just take a moment and ask that God would open our eyes. We can't, we can't understand this book fully without him revealing the truth that is in it and taking away the clouds of confusion uh, that exist in our lives because we live in a world that's full of sin. So let's just take one brief moment and pray for uh, the, the, the word to rest heavy in our hearts right now. God, we thank you for all you intend to teach us. I pray that you would soften us right now, that we would be moldable, like clay, God, that you would make us more like Jesus Christ, shape us and form us. Father, if there are parts of us that need to be removed so that we can better represent you, God, please take them out of our lives. We want nothing holding us back from being near to you. We want nothing in our lives that would misrepresent you, Lord God. So give us a great desire for holiness, Lord. I pray that when we do stumble and fall and we, we admit that we inevitably do stumble and fall, we do commit sin against you, God, that you would cause us to hate that sin, that we would leave no place for it in our lives, Lord, and that by your power we would remove it. We do this all for your glory, God, and we do it through the guidance of your word. So right now, open our eyes to what you have to teach us. Prepare us to be changed by it, Lord, and I pray that it would not just rest in our minds, but that we would live out the things that we learn today in our actions as we obey you. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just a second, there's going to be a picture on the screen that you might remember from back in 1992. It was the spring of 1992. It was an election year, and a certain Bill Clinton did what presidential candidates at that time never did. He went on not an esteemed news show, but he went on a late-night talk show. Arsenio Hall was actually a thing back then, and, um, and here we have a picture of Bill Clinton wearing shades and playing the saxophone. And many political pundits believe that that choice to go on to a popular show and to show a side of himself that was fun-loving and light-hearted and cool, if I can say the word without sounding too dumb, um, was a huge factor in swaying the nation's opinion in Bill Clinton. He was running against George H. Bush at the time, who to many young people in our nation was seen as responsible and boring. And so I'm not saying this is the only thing that won the election for Bill Clinton, but it really resonated with a lot of people because a lot of people in this world value fun more than they value responsibility. We often look for the wrong things. We look for the wrong things in our friends, and we look for the wrong things in our relationships. We look for the wrong things in our leaders. But the scripture is straight with us. In light, in light of the expectations that are put on those who would lead, we've been studying the biblical description of what leaders should look like, what elders and deacons should look like. The final category of necessary qualities of a New Testament leader today are going to address a man's ability to govern his own heart. His own heart, which is prone to wander, and his mind, which is not always reliable in the things that it thinks and the ideas that it comes up with. And so as we think about the qualities that really describe a man who is fit to serve 
as a leader in God's church, we need to ask the question, does this man exhibit reasonable control over himself? The two biblical texts we'll be leaning on this morning are Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3, both of which are letters that Paul wrote to dear friends who were also serving (coughs) in leadership capacity as elders, as overseers, as leaders in local churches. And one of the important tasks that they are responsible for is appointing other men to serve as leaders beside them. God does not intend his churches to be led by lone wolves, but rather he wants to raise up men who are responsible, who can as a team join arms together in leading God's church in in a responsible and holy way. In these two passages, a number of terms are used to flesh out this idea of a man having reasonable control over himself. So if you look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 2, Paul writes that the man who is going to be an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Then if you were to flip to Titus chapter 1, which is a parallel passage that also describes a leader in God's church. Verse 7 says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent man or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So the term that stands out first in these list of of terms, some of which we've already worked through in previous weeks, but these terms that have to do with a man's ability to govern his heart, the first word that is most often translated as literally self-control. The self-controlled man is able to manage and govern his own heart and mind. But when we speak of the character of a godly leader, the term self-control might not be specific enough because every man's self contains both good and evil motives, doesn't it? We are specifically looking for a man who is controlled by the parts of himself that desire to be pleasing to the Lord. The man who is self-controlled is the man who comes alongside the guiding of God and says again and again, amen. So be it. Thy will be done. So in as much as a man has submitted himself to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We want to see that reflected in the way that he takes control of his heart and his mind so that the things that he feels and the things that he thinks might line up with the things that Jesus Christ wants for him and has modeled in his own life on earth. So in order to really understand this, I want us to turn in our Bibles today to Romans chapter 6. So if you've got your scripture, open it up here to Romans chapter 6. Here Paul is going to open our eyes to the shocking state of the heart of man. Man tends to think of himself as the king of his own kingdom, the ruler of his own heart and mind. But the apostle Paul is going to challenge that to a degree over the course of some very interesting verses here in chapter 6 of Romans. And so let me just read to you verse 16 and then in a few minutes we're going to look at also verses 17 and 18. Chapter 6 verse 16 says... Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? The Apostle Paul here describes the reality that most people don't want to acknowledge, that we are the slave to whom we obey. And all of us start out our lives by obeying something other than God. There is no one who is born saved. There is no one who pops out into this world ready to serve the Lord God, submitted to Him, no matter how holy your family is, no matter how much mom and dad love the Lord, no matter how much you were prayed for before you got into this world, you are born into this world with what we call a sin nature. You are predisposed to rebel against the authority of the God 
that has made you. Paul describes this reality in very vivid terms. And isn't it true when we look at our own lives and see that all of us are born obeying sin and we are therefore slaves to the sin that compels us? For some of you, it might might manifest itself like this. You don't know why, but as you speak, you are telling another lie, trying to cover up the lie that you told earlier. You, You want to be the kind of person that tells the truth, but you are compelled to try to save your reputation, your good standing with others, by yet another fabrication. You're so desperate to be approved that you do the very thing that would cause you to distrust somebody else if you knew they were doing it. You lie to the people who are around you. You distort reality and you hope no one finds out. You don't want to do it, but again and again and again you find yourself twisting the truth. Somebody else might feel sick to their stomach because they just finished eating their third dessert. The sugar on your lips should be a comfort, but instead it makes you almost nauseous with guilt. You know that it's bad for you. You know that dessert is okay in moderation, but you're well beyond that. We're talking about gluttony, and and we know that if we're honest with ourselves. And the number one, the number that shows up on that scale and that grows larger week by week is cause for great shame and sadness because you want to be healthy. You know in your mind that moderation is better for you, but you keep obeying your stomach instead. For somebody else, it's, it's hearing that shrill pitch of your own voice yelling at someone that you love out of anger, out of frustration. It almost feels like an out-of-body experience. Who is this person that continually spouts hateful, furious words? You want to be a loving person, but here you are again. You know you're going to have to do some serious work to undo what you just said. You're screaming at someone that you care about because there is some uncontrollable temper that goes off like a switch inside of you. And when it does, you act like a monster. And maybe those aren't your particular sins, but friends, every one of us battles against this natural desire to do what is contrary to the nature of our God. That is what I'm describing right now. I'm describing the many faces of sin that controlled us before Jesus grabbed a hold of our lives and began to transform us into something holier for his glory. We think that we are free, apart from the authority of God. We think that we can rule ourselves well, but the opposite is true. When the God of truth and love and justice is not ruling over us, something much darker is ruling over us, and that something is sin. We're constantly pushed and pulled by the forces that play in this world around us, and most people have not even come to terms with the fact that this is happening. They continue to be drawn down the same self-destructive paths, but they're content to believe that they are free, that they are living according to their own wishes, that they are the king of their own lives. But God reveals to us through his scripture that the opposite is true, that we are mired in a slavery to these impulses, to this temptation that is so natural to our hearts. And so here in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, the apostle Paul reveals that while we are all slaves to some degree, there are essentially two masters that we can be serving. You can either serve sin, which is the default master, this master that tempts us to do what is dishonorable to God. Every human being is born serving sin. And what does that lead to, friends? It leads to death. When we rebel against the giver of life, he has every right to take our lives away from us. This master does not have our best interests in mind. When we listen to these temptations, it might feel good for a moment, but it eventually leads to regret and shame. It leads to broken relationships, and it leads to a distance between the creator and the creation. But there is a second master that we can serve, and that is righteousness. When we serve righteousness in Jesus Christ, it leads to life. There is an alternative to being ruled by sin. When we choose to stop the charade, to stop pretending that we rule ourselves and to instead come under that perfect rule and direction of Jesus Christ, we are set free from that former master which desired to destroy us. 
So since none of us is absolutely free, we're either serving this master of sin or we're serving the good master of righteousness. I think it's useful for us to, for us to come to terms with the fact that we don't give up self-control to become followers of Jesus. We give up the illusion of it. Those who refuse Christ and don't want to have him as Lord and King, they believe they are running their own lives, but in reality, this greater evil, this sin is causing them to, to, to battle with themselves day by day, and they might continue this, this illusion, believing that they are free, but in reality, they are not. When we come to Christ on his terms, we confess our sin before him with a repentant heart and ask for him to give us the power to turn from it, then he sets us free from the master that would destroy us and he gives us instead this, this master that we can serve in love, a master who wants what is best for us. And so returning to Romans chapter six, looking at verses 17 and 18, Paul goes on to say, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. How? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. When I set, submitted myself to Jesus Christ, it became possible for me to have a kind of self-control that I couldn't fathom before. I had for my whole life battled against these temptations and sometimes I would seem to win, but typically I'd lose. I'd go back to that failing mode. I'd go back to, oh, I guess I'll have to try harder next time. But when I gave my life to Christ, something changed in me. I can now have a standard by which I live. There is now a goal, a direction that my life is aimed. I can shoot for the scripture. I can try to be as Christ was. I don't have to guess at what is good or what is holy or what is best. Jesus Christ tells me what I should live like. And because I have seen his great love for me, I have every reason to believe that what he tells me to live like is for my best and not to, to keep me from joy or to rob from me the illusion of freedom but rather it is to enrich me and to help me to be nearer to the greatest blessing I can have, which is a right relationship with God. Now that he has changed me, now that he has become my king and my Lord, not just my savior, but my ruler, the one who, who's in charge of my life, I can now say no to sin because a power greater than my own has come to reside in me. Those who, the, who trust the Lord Jesus Christ have been given the Holy Spirit of God. And that Holy Spirit of God is greater than you can be. So when that temptation comes your way and you would formally have given into it, you would have had no answer for it, the Holy Spirit now that resides in you can give you the strength to stand in truth and say, no, I am not that man anymore. No, Christ has made me a different person. I am a woman of truth. I am a man of truth. I am a child of truth. I will not go down the path that dishonors the Lord. Now I can be pleasing to God. My good deeds are no longer just to justify myself or to make other people believe that I'm a good person. Now I can sincerely serve the Lord God from his power. And in doing so, the glory goes to him, not to me. So I can be pleasing to God. I can take my thoughts and my emotions captive because I now trust in the Lord God who rules me in a wonderful and loving way. I can now be slow to anger and slow to wrath. Instead, I can be quick to listen. I can take control of this temper that used to control me. Though I was formerly powerless to rule my passions and overcome my temptations, there is a greater strength in me now that is bigger than my own. And I don't have to be a victim. I can be holy because Christ has conquered my sin. Full disclosure, friends. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're experiencing a perfect level of self-control, right? This process that God brings us through, after we give our lives to him and he defeats our sin, our guilt is defeated. We are no longer condemned before God, but he is also now taking us on a journey of sanctification whereby he trains us out of this mindset of self-control and into a greater walk with him where we trust him more day by day. So not everyone has a great level of self-control who has been saved, but all of us who have Christ now have that power available to us. And the longer we live for him and seek him out, the more he will train us to, to gain more and more control over this life that we are living now for his glory.
depending on where you are at in the process of sanctification, you might still be learning the basics of how to walk like a, a person who has been freed from sin. But the people that we allow to serve in the church as, as leaders, specifically as deacons and elders, should be men who are well along that path. They should be men who know what it means to be slaves to righteousness and have therefore learned to consistently control themselves. No one is perfect at this, not even pastors. But the people who are going to be leading you must be men who know how to lead their own hearts and minds in Christ. This self-control is going to require a high degree of of vigilance. And that is why the author of these passages in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 um, also uses the term sober-minded to describe those who will serve the church in these ways. A man who desires to be self-controlled, to govern himself, must be sober-minded in the way that he sees and responds to the world around him. For a man to be self-controlled, he must approach the world with his eyes wide open. He must be aware. He must be careful not to be lured down the wrong paths and tempted into disruptive sinful patterns of behavior by his own selfish heart. Now the word, when we hear sober-minded, that word sober almost always brings our minds to drunkenness or intoxication. But drink and drugs are not the only things that can cloud a man's mind, are they? Can success cloud a man's mind? Can a man be drunk upon power? When we read the scripture, we see even the 12 disciples on multiple occasions were distracted by the mission that God had put them on because they were bickering amongst each other about who was going to be the greatest of the 12 and who was going to sit at the right hand of Jesus Christ when he established his kingdom. A man who will lead the church well must be a man who is not so intoxicated by success and power that he's more intent to build his own personal kingdom than he is to build the kingdom of heaven. The desires of the flesh, the the temptations we spoke about at length earlier, can be just as intoxicating as drink or drugs, can't they? King David proved that to us. When he was experiencing unprecedented success as the leader of the nation of Israel, A clouding of the mind overcame him when he saw a beautiful young woman bathing on the roof of her dwelling place. He was in the the, uh, palace, which was above the the city of, of Jerusalem, and he saw this woman naked bathing. He was lusting after her, and rather than taking control of those ideas or thoughts, he allowed himself to be swept away by his desires, and it led him down a path of destruction which would put a mark on his leadership that would last forever. A mark that would forever make us wonder what could have been if David had controlled his desires. So the desires of the flesh can be quite intoxicating as well. They can cloud our vision and keep us from seeing the world accurately. Desire for the approval of men can also cloud our minds and make us confused and cause us to have bad judgment when we are supposed to be leading other people in the truth. Israel's very first king was not David, it was Saul. Saul had received explicit directions from God to go into battle against the Amalekites back in 1 Samuel 15 and to do battle against them, but to not take any spoils for his army. The Amalekites were so wicked that the the instruction that was given to Saul was defeat them in battle and destroy everything. Do not take anything for yourselves. But the soldiers that Saul was in charge of, they didn't want to hear that. They were putting themselves on the line and they wanted to be able to reap some of the spoils of war, and so Saul allowed them to take some of the things that they should never have taken. And so that battle, though it was supposed to be a a, a visual of God's perfect judgment upon sin, was spoiled by their inability to control their desires. And because Saul was not a good leader and did not control his desire to be approved of by his people, he allowed them to do what was dishonorable to the Lord God, and Israel suffered because of it. These are only a few examples of the kinds of temptations that can potentially cloud our clear thinking and cause us to abandon the truth that God has revealed to us. The man who does this has abandoned self-control and is being controlled by something other than Jesus, his king. So how, brothers and sisters, do we pursue this sober-mindedness? 
We do so by tying up all the loose ends in our minds. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to 1 Peter 1, or this will also be on the screen for you. I love the cohesive testimony of the Scripture. It doesn't really matter if Paul's preaching or if Peter's writing. They all are saying the same things together, aren't they? 1 Peter 1.13 expands on this idea of sober-mindedness. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's speaking of sober-minded, and he, and he, he sandwiches that term, sober-mindedness, in between two practices that a leader in the church would do well to employ in his own life. First of all, he says, to prepare your minds for action. Now, the literal term there kind of gets lost in translation for some of us Western thinkers. It is Literally, to gird your mind for action. And if you're familiar with Roman soldiers and the dress that they would wear at those times, this would be really clear to the people who originally read this. The Roman soldiers wore a a loose tunic. um, And when they were to go into battle or if they were to engage in heavy labor or activity, they would take that tunic, which had the potential to trip them up or to get in the way, and they would pull it tight around their bodies, and they would cinch it into a sash that they wore so that the loose ends of their clothing would not then get caught up in the things they were doing, would not hinder them or slow them down. So when Peter is saying, prepare your minds for action, he's saying literally, gird up your minds. Tighten your thinking. Don't let yourself be confused and wondering about a hundred different things, but rather focus your mind. Think about the right things so that you will not be tripped up, so that when you're engaged in following the Lord and serving Him, you'll be ready for action. We prepare our minds, we gird up the loins of our minds by making sure we know our God. We seek a clear understanding of who God is. I don't want believers to be settling for some vague understanding of the one they claim to love, the one that saved their life and redefined who they are. If God is our Savior, then we should desire to know Him. And not just in some uh, acquaintance kind of way, but we should desire to know God intimately, to know him inside and out, to understand what kind of a God he is and what he loves and what makes him different than us and unique from all other things. We should know our God. If you do not seek to know God, then you're going to be vulnerable to letting the world that you live in define God for you. And how does the world typically define God? Well, in our Western culture, the world will typically try to convince you that God is like your spiritual grandpa who loves you no matter what, demands very little of you, and will bail you out of every problem that you get in without expecting anything in return. That's what the West wants to think of God as being, more like a spiritual genie in the bottle. When in reality, the scripture tells us that the God that we come to serve today and sing praises to is a God who is perfectly loving, but also perfectly just. A God who will not allow sin to continue to dwell in his creation. A God who desires what is right and good for us, a God who says, come and give me your life, submit yourself to me, and I will make you new. And then you will learn to walk in my ways. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So we prepare our minds by by knowing who our God really is and seeking to understand him and have right doctrine about his nature and his character and his being. And to do that, we've got to know our Bibles, right? We've got to get into the word of the Lord and refuse to let what God has revealed to us remain unread on the pages of our scriptures. We gotta seek him and study his law. Not that we are under the law of Moses anymore, but the law that, that directed the nation of Israel revealed much of the character of God and what he desires. And so we would do well to listen to this law because we are to obey all that God has commanded. Not for our salvation, but because these things are good to him. So know your word. Seek to understand the history of Israel. See how you fit into that picture now through the covenant of grace. Know your word. If you don't know the scripture, your attempts to live like Christ will likely fall far short of what he wants for you. And as you're reading your scripture and and, and tying up those loose ends, those mysteries in your mind and becoming more educated about what kind of a God you serve and, and how he has saved you through Christ, know your mission as well. The people of God have an incredibly important task that we are to be engaged with at all times. 
And that task is to bring the gospel into a lost world. The gospel is the good news of salvation that can only come through the Son of God. And so to tie up loose, loose ends in your mind means to understand what the gospel means and to bring that gospel to people with love and with clarity so that they can know the gospel as well and so that they can decide for themselves whether they are willing to repent of their sin and turn to Christ or that they will continue to walk opposed to God. Being oblivious to the mission is going to cause you to wander through life without purpose and it's going to, de- to lead to a neglect of your spiritual gifting and the qualities that God has put into you to be a blessing to your church. So the elder or the deacon, the man who desires to lead in God's church, has prepared himself in these areas and is ready so that he will not be confused and confounded by the thoughts of the world around him. He is humble enough to know that there is still much for him to learn, that he will always be seeking to better understand this God, but we don't want to put people into positions of leadership people that other people in the church will go to for guidance and direction if those so-called leaders do not know the scripture, if they are not familiar with the nature and character of God, if they are not intimately clear on the mission that God has called his church to. So 1 Peter tells us that we are to prepare our minds for action. And then beyond that term of sober-mindedness, it says we're also to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where is your hope, church? Where is your hope? When the world begins to oppress you and disappoint you and frustrate you, where do you look for for hope? Misplaced hopes are going to keep you confused and undermine your sober-mindedness. When your hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ, say your hope is in your retirement, You've worked really hard to put into your 401k and to invest and you've got this nest egg. Then what happens when something medically goes terribly wrong and you've got to pay out $100,000, $200,000, a million dollars to gain health again and then suddenly that hope is depleted or gone entirely. Where is your hope? If your hope is in people, if that's where you get your joy from, I get my joy from my family, well, what happens if those people begin to disappoint you? And those people that you are depending on turn out to be not quite the person you thought they were going to be. Does your hope die with that transformation, with that, that new understanding of that person? Or is your hope based on something more firm, something more solid, something more dependable? If I allow my hope to be in worldly things, my allegiance will inevitably be in those things. And my heart and worshipful love will go to them instead of to God. So if you want your mind girded, if you want your mind tight and focused and efficient, then make sure that your hope is on the one thing it should be on, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who keeps every promise, the one who never failed the one who cannot be opposed by anyone. Trust in him. Put your hope in the grace that he provides to you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Church, we of all people in this world need to be the ones who are awake and alert, the ones who are not easily confused or deceived. We must have our eyes open. We must be prepared for the lies that the enemy would sling at us. And it is very critical that we would put leaders whose minds are not entangled with the confusions of the world, but are rather alert and wide awake. We must put these leaders into positions of authority. Because one of the things that the leaders in the church are set aside to do is guard the flock of God. Help them to see these pitfalls and see these potential deceptions before we fall victim to them. We live amidst constant threats to our spiritual health. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 says, be, here's that term again, sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there is a, a true danger to those who desire to walk in the truth. 
And you are blessed that the Lord God would have you protected by shepherds and by deacons who would look out for you in times of trouble and and struggle. And when you are beginning to, to be tangled up in something you shouldn't, that they would come alongside you and help you and clarify things to you so that you too can have your mind prepared for, for what God has, has got you um, called to. <clears throat> you would benefit from having deacons and elders who are sober-minded, keeping an eye out for the wolves who would teach confusing distortions in the earth, and you would also benefit from having deacons and elders who are self-controlled in the way of being not quick-tempered. Men who have a handle on their emotions. And we've spoke to some degree about this a couple weeks back, but I want to get a little bit more practical here this morning. What are some real world ways that you can stifle a hot temper? If your fuse is short, how can you lengthen it? How can you be a man who is more patient when it comes to emotional reactions? One of the ways you can do that is not only do we prepare our minds, as Peter said, but we prepare our hearts as well. Know thyself. Christian. Examine your heart and know what has the potential to set you off and then make a decision ahead of time that you're not going to fail in that area, that you're going to instead lean into the power of God and trust for him to provide in you so that you don't have to be swept away by the current of what you feel, but rather you can stand firm in what you know and what has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example of how we see this done in Scripture. Job chapter 31. Job, who was a a man of God, but who experienced great hardship and trial. Uh, Almost everything was taken from him, and and he was tested to see if he would stay firm in his faith with the Lord God. And in Job 31, verse 1, it says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Here is a man who has seen others fall to adultery or to promiscuity or to immorality. And so what has he done? He has made a covenant with his eyes. He saw the pitfall down the road and he didn't say, well, a lot of guys are going to fall into that, but not me. He said, that's something I need to be aware of. That is something I need to guard my heart for. And so he made a covenant with his eyes. He made a promise to himself and to the Lord early on that he would fight that battle as it came, that he'd be alert to it. He prepared his heart to be ready. We, friends, need to identify those places in our lives where we might be tempted to struggle and then determine ahead of time to fight that battle with particular focus and commitment. Find somebody else in the church that is good at fighting that battle and learn from them. Go and ask them, how do you stay pure of mind and heart? How is it that you don't find yourself drunk, hanging out with the wrong guys, partying like like so many people around me? How is it that you have saved yourself for marriage like this in a world that is so oversexed? How do you do that? Find these men, find these, these women, bring yourself near to them and ask them how they follow after Christ and be accountable to one another, but determine to be on extra alert and pray in preparation for those battles that are sure to come. Another way that we lengthen that fuse that so often is short amongst people in the Western world is, is by bridling our tongue, by learning to control the things that we say. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The things that you say can have a devastating impact on other people, They can damage the hearts of those that we love. They can scar our good standing amongst them, our reputation towards them, their view of our character. Or those very same words, if said rightly, if said patiently and slowly, can be the words that bring healing to a brother or sister. And so as Christians, if we want to have control of our temper, we need to learn to practice silence. To not always be the one speaking quickly when we have a thought or an idea in our mind or have an opinion, but rather let us be ones who learn to be slow to speak and instead listen to others so we might better understand their position before we spout out without understanding and hurt them over something that we just understood wrongly. Let us be slow to speak. Let us practice moderation in our words and let us desire to always use the kind of words that would bless another person. Now, granted, sometimes our words need to sting because the truth stings. 
But there are many times when a believer will say the thing that needs to be said and will say it in such a a way that it is unnecessarily harmful to the brother or sister who needs to hear it. So we should aim to bridle our tongue and better control our words. And you'll see that has a tremendous impact on your ability to to not be quick-tempered. And then we have to remember, friends, not to take everything so personally. I, I, I know people, and I know that you know people, that everything seems to be an attack to them. And maybe this is you. Maybe this is something that you struggle with. We tend to see the world through our own perspective, and it is difficult for us to sometimes step out of that perspective and realize there is much more going on that doesn't really involve us than we realize. When somebody says something towards you and you take it personally, you're much more likely to respond with a defensive posture, to fight back with fire. But if we can learn to not take things so personally, then we can do a a lot of good towards this tendency we have to be angry and frustration. Look at John 15, 8. It says, if the world hates you, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. What is Jesus telling to his church in preparation for what they'll face in this world? Many people are going to think badly about you because you follow Christ. He's saying, listen, when it comes down to it, when you're persecuted, remember this, it's not about you. It's not about who you are or what you stand for. It's about me. I am, I am the one this world hates. And so don't take it so personally. Because we can learn to not take things so personally, we can then bring correction to a brother or sister and say, listen, this isn't just me judging you. This isn't me thinking badly about you. This is simply God judging us together. He is, he is the one who has this divine standard of truth. Let's live by it together. Let me help you to walk rightly. We, we can... We can take criticism and realize that sometimes, yeah, I I need to be more like Christ. And it's not so much about me, it's about the name of Christ in me. I need to correct that error in my life so that I can better represent Jesus who has saved me and made me God's. So we need to, to bridle our hearts, we need to take into control our temper, and lastly, a self controlled man will live a life that is disciplined. Now, when we think of the of discipline, we often think about a punishment that somebody else brings upon us, right? Your mom and dad disciplined you when you were children. When you were children. Your, your boss at work might discipline you. Husbands, your wife might have to bring the discipline from time to time if you get out of line. But the word in the original Greek of Titus 1.8, which is used here in, the, in, in, in Scripture, refers to mastery of one's self. It's not talking about discipline from outside. It's talking about discipline within ourselves, so this, this word in the Greek, which is inkrate, describes a person who knows what he needs to do and orders his life in such a way that it will be accomplished. He knows what he needs to do, and then he makes the effort. He takes the steps necessary to make sure that it will happen. Not everyone is naturally disciplined, are they? And there are a number of pleasant adjectives that we have come up with to describe those of us who are not disciplined in a positive way. I'm flexible. I work best under pressure. I'm a free spirit. I see the bright side. I'm optimistic. But no matter how we try to spin it, anyone who wants to be effective at overcoming their flesh and serving the Lord will need to train themselves to be disciplined. To discipline themselves to some degree so that they are not wasteful and ineffective with the time that they have been given. Hebrews 12, 11 says that all discipline seems painful in the moment, right? But later, that discipline will yield in us peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we need to realize that personal discipline is good for us, that we need to learn to set goals for ourselves, that we need to say, what does God want of me that, that I am not living obediently in right now? And what can I do to take steps towards a greater obedience? Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Friends, the days that we live in, there is evil all around us. And if we are not intentional about the way that we live out our time that God has given to us, then we'll fall into those evil patterns. We will be drifting along with the current of the world. So we must then carefully look at how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, that we might make the best use of our time. Now, notice, it doesn't say make the most use of your time. 
This doesn't mean that every moment of your schedule needs to be packed filled with something productive. We serve a God who has mercifully given us a pattern of work, 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 rest. When he made the heavens and the earth, he did it in six days. And then he rested on the seventh day. Not because he needed it. God's power is limitless. He never needs to take a nap. He did it because he loves us. And that rest became a pattern for us to realize that you just can't go full steam all the time. There are days when you're going to need to, to, to hold back and just enjoy the Lord God and spend time with your family and sleep and pray and just enjoy what God has blessed you with. So this idea to, to, to use your time wisely isn't to cram it full of every possible activity, but to use it to its best. Making the best use of time means being strategic about how you live out your days and giving glory in everything that you do. So to see a biblical example of a disciplined man, we don't have to look any further than Jesus Christ himself. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, describes how rising very early in the morning while it was still dark outside, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. This man who lacked nothing took the time to seek the Father in communication. And because there was so much demanded of his days, since everyone was trying to swarm around him at all times, asking for a healing, pleading for an exorcism, asking for wisdom and preaching and teaching and attention, when did he fit that into his day? He put it first. He woke up early before everyone else was awake and he went and sought the Lord in prayer. And if that, friends, is something that sounds really impossible for you to do, then it might mean that you need to go to bed earlier at night so that you can get up early and seek the Lord first thing in the morning. Now, you don't have to necessarily seek him in the morning. It's not like you're gonna be in sin if you don't do it then. But so many people say, I just don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. Time is not something you need to find. Everybody has the same 24 hours in every day. It's something that you need to make for the Lord. Be intentional, be self-controlled by disciplining yourself to seek the Lord God and rest in him. We read that Jesus, as a child, accompanying his family to the temple each year. And in one particular account in Luke 2, we find him seeking out discussions with grown men regarding God's word. Others were astounded at how advanced he was in his understanding. And yet the scripture is careful to communicate to us in Luke 2:52 that even Jesus, who was God in the flesh, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor, in favor with God and man. So he sought wisdom. He wanted to spend time with those who could ask him the right questions, who could spur him on to read the right things. And so he put time into his schedule to be with those who knew more than him. We've got to set time apart to be growing in our understanding of God so that we'll appreciate him more and that we won't become stagnant Christians who just know the same things we knew when we were saved 12 years ago. Let us seek to find him. And that's gonna take some discipline, inserting scripture and study into our daily schedule. And each of the four gospels records the example of Jesus who led by the Spirit was out fasting in the wilderness. And again in Mark 9, 29, Jesus casts out a stubborn demon and he shares with his disciples who were unable to do the same task. He says, this kind only comes out, how? By prayer and by fasting. So here's a man that disciplined himself. Jesus practiced intentional times of self-denial, which freed up time to pray and trained the body to know that the mind is in charge, not the desires of the stomach or the flesh. Jesus was not controlled by his appetite. His appetite was submissive to his mind. And he made time in his life to make sure that these practices would fit into his schedule. So too should we, Christian, order our days in such a way that we are using our minutes wisely for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, that perishable wreath was an olive branch twisted and formed into a crown, which would be given to the winner of a race. He says, but we are seeking an imperishable crown that we will receive in heaven. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. 
lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The man that God wants to use as a leader in his church is not the kind of man who just runs through life aimlessly or doesn't know what target he's aiming for. The self-controlled man establishes boundaries for himself. He sets tangible goals. There are distinct standards by which he orders his life and spends his time. And each of these is set for him by the word of God. That is his ultimate standard. Notice that the word, sorry, notice that the God that we serve is not a reactive God who shoots from the hip and waits for things to unfold before he determines what kind of action he will take. God has a plan always. He is always ordered in his approach. Look at Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God didn't just wait to see how things would turn out and say, oh, that's not going the way that I thought. I thought law was going to save people. It didn't, so let's try something else. No, God had a plan from the very beginning, and we see the evidence of that in Genesis chapter 3 when he promises that the foot of Eve's seed would bruise the head of the serpent and that that, that would bruise the heel of the son, that Jesus Christ would be the sacrifice who would, to his own harm, redeem us from our sins. So God is... Is, is a planner. He, he makes plans and he keeps those plans. There is a, a highly practical aspect to this characteristic of being disciplined. We cannot be content to just talk about how we need to study the word of God more. or We can't just say, I, I should be praying about those things, but we need to, today, if necessary, write down in our Bibles a, a goal and say, from now on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna study four chapters of scripture a day. I'm going to read one chapter of scripture today. I'm going to pray for 20 minutes every day. And I'm going to do it at this time of the day because if I don't make the plan, it's not going to get done. If I don't discipline myself, then no one else is going to. I've got to determine to use my days in a way that glorifies the Lord God. The more we desire to be like Christ, friends, the more we will have to determine to let go of certain aspects of ourselves that do not reflect the holiness of Jesus. This process of being self-controlled or more accurately saying yes and amen to the control of Christ in us is only possible when we allow the Holy Spirit of God to fill us and change the things that we desire so that we might be willing to let go of those things that used to be a, a key part of our identity, those parts of us that do not please the Lord God, that we don't want to allow to dwell in us any longer. Will we allow the Lord to refine us, to make us new? These are the kinds of men that we want leading our church. Not men who are led by their bellies or men who are led by their own brilliant, innovative ideas. We want men who are in control because Christ has been put in control of them. They have surrendered themselves to the lead of the one true king. And because of that, as they serve him, they are able to lead us. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer?